From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. I woke up, that's joy. Her family's musical legacy goes back four generations in Colorado. But Denver singer-songwriter Joe Folke isn't relying on that as she makes her own mark, bearing her soul on stage. He was like, yeah, I really enjoy you. You know, you're extremely talented. Nobody is talking about the things that you're talking about from the stage. Then, it was once a thriving Black homestead in Northern Colorado. Now Deerfield could become part of the national park system. With that designation, we can continue to share and celebrate the history of our ancestors. And later, an all-star moment for the voice of the Denver Nuggets. We'll share how he found his way to the microphone and Colorado history. I'm a man of faith, and I always say it was God that opened that door for me. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We're sharing the stories of some notable Black Coloradans today as we celebrate Black History Month. Kiss goodbyes the only time our faces touch. This is new music out today from someone whose musical legacy in Colorado goes back four generations. I wrap my arms around you, but embracing feels so strange. I think we can both agree we're not doing fine. The butterflies have died inside. Butterflies have died. The love we have inside is dying. The artist goes by Joe Foki. She is Jocelyn Ford Keel, and this song, Butterflies Have Died, is the first single off her forthcoming debut album. Joe Foki also has a residency at the Denver Club Dazzle. Jocelyn, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, I had the opportunity to see you open for Michelle and Deggio Cello, and that was very exciting to me. Yes. That was exciting to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> it, really, it really was a blessing to be there. But congratulations to you on the release of this new music and the album you have coming up. Can you tell me more about your dad's family and their experience playing music here for three generations before you? My grandmother, Mabel Maxwell Keel, was, we're not sure if she was the first, but we know she was one of the first Mm. black Denver silent films pianist. And she went on to have a career in nursing. And so my father was between seven and 10 when he learned that she had this whole life before him. His father was also a musician. He was a trumpeter. He did some touring with Louis Armstrong and... Mm, Um, From my hometown of New Orleans. Yes, yes, yes. And I guess he was the cat's meow, (laughs) as my mother would say. He was really good at that, but his passion for culinary arts won out. 
Mm, sounds like a lot of passions run in your family. Absolutely. So your dad trio, the Joe Kill Trio, was featured in a Rocky Mountain PBS documentary on jazz and five points. Yes. Here's a clip of them playing in 1961. Very young at that time, still a student. What has he told you about being a musician in Denver at that time? He was so inspired by the people that surrounded him. Um, The neighborhood that my generation refers to as the East Side or the E is Mm. where he was. He said that it was just really common for everyone at that time to have some kind of musical talent. He just pursued it heavily, (laughs) more heavily than his peers. All of his siblings, it was a requirement that they couldn't go out and play (laughs) (laughs) until they swept, they cleaned the kitchen, and practiced their instrument. So how young was he playing in the Five Points Clubs? He was seven when he made his debut at the Rossonian. He played with the house big band. He and his big brother, Vernon, who was An old man. He was nine. (laughs) And they made their debut and they were told to come back in a few years (laughs) because they were competent and able to play the notes on the sheet. But the conductor told them that they needed to get some life Mm. on them, get some life behind them. Uh, Well, your family's roots in Colorado clearly run deep. (laughs) Absolutely. On your mom's side, your grandparents sang a cappella here locally. How old were you when you started performing and got into the family business? Oh, wow. I started singing along with music and making up my own melodies before I could form words. Mm. And I sang my first solo at church. Shout out to New Hope Baptist Church (laughs) (laughs) when I was two. And then I did my first professional performance at five. So I've been in the game for 37 years 37 years. We have been paying taxes (laughs) behind my performances. In what ways do you think about this family legacy when you're writing songs or performing? I don't know that it is something that is right at the top of my consciousness, Mm -hmm. but it is ever present. The legacy of not just music, musical excellence, the pursuit of besting oneself. You know, that is something that I, I learned by watching their example. You know, they didn't necessarily tell me, you have to be the best. Mm. Um, But they did tell me I needed to be the best that I could be. How did you decide to go by the stage name Jopo Key? I am a proud alumna of Fisk University. Mm. And I was... HBCU, Historically Black College. Yes. University. Yes, yes, yes. And I became a Jubilee singer, and one of my Jubilee big sisters was playing with my name. And it helped to kind of step out of the shadow of my family. I didn't always want to be known as Winston Ford's niece Mm. or Joe Keel's daughter or Jennifer Ford Keel's daughter. I wanted to, you know, be able to carve out my own path. Well, I'm also an HBCU graduate, Clark Atlanta University. So All right. Hey, great sis. Great to hear that. <laughs> so there was a period of your life where you left Colorado. 
How did living in Nashville or just being outside of Colorado influence you? I think that everyone should leave their home. You get to know who you are. You really find out what you heard, what really went in your ear, (laughs) what mama said that stuck. And you get to craft who it is you want to be in life and artistically. It is no secret that the Black population in Colorado is kind of small. I think it's, what, 4% of the population. And so going to an HBCU in a more densely Black-populated state um, and city. And really part of the country. (laughs) Right, part of the country, absolutely. There are things that are present there, things in our culture, be it events, be it, you know, that, that we don't have necessarily here or we don't have an abundance of. I won't say that we don't have Black culture here because we absolutely do. Yes. And when I was in Atlanta at the Atlanta University Center for as a student at Clark Atlanta University, I was struck by how many people came from different parts of the country saying they had never been around that many people of their own culture ever. Right. That's very true. That actually, interestingly enough, wasn't my reality Because back then, in the 80s, a lot of my existence was in the Five Points area. I would have um, dance at 8 a.m. at Ulipians Cultural Center right there on Welton and then go to my children's choir rehearsal. And a lot of my time was spent surrounded by Black folks. I would go to sorority meeting with my mother. She's a Delta That is an historic, well, I'm a Delta now, but saying all that to say that I was surrounded by Black culture and, you know, some of those things just aren't available to us now, to this generation that does kind of make me sad. Some of the cultural opportunities, some of the community centers and what have you just aren't in existence anymore. I just hate that, um, well, the gentrification has really displaced the Black community at large. Now, speaking of connections and community and correction of community, you have a residency, as I mentioned, at Dazzle that's been going on since 2021. And I understand the club was already an important place for you even before that during the protest movement in 2020. Could you tell us more about that? Absolutely. I was... (laughs) protesting before that, this was like 2014, Mm. 2015, after the Mike Brown and Eric Garner incidents. I was quite heavily protesting and a lot of the time to sort of wind down after a protest or a meeting or, or something in activism, I would go to Dazzle and they had like this open mic that would would happen or they would have young bands that would play starting at, say, nine and go until one in the morning. And so I would go in and, you know, kind of look like (laughs) what I'd been through (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, would sit in and sing. And word got to Don Rosa, who at this time had no clue that he knew my people (laughs) <laughs> or that you knew my dad. or And I'm sure that's important because I, I know people who are part of like well-known families and there's sort of a point where you want to have a kind of a distance because you don't want people treating you a certain way. Right. Or questioning if your talent is actually a thing mm. or if you're just getting 
this treatment because exactly because of that legacy. At then Jazz at Jacks, he was coming to hear me. Oh, I and miss Jazz at Jacks so know, much. I know. And then <laughs> it was so on the 16th Street Mall. It's one of the first places I really appreciated when I moved here. It was definitely a vibe. And we need spaces like Jazz at Jacks. A lot of my growth happened there. I miss that spot. And I really hope that we get something like that for other young artists to come and um, cut their teeth. You mentioned Don Rosa, who was the owner of Dazzle at that time, and he wanted you to do the residency. Yes. Don caught a show, and um, he was like, yeah, I really enjoy you. You know, you're extremely talented, but nobody is talking about the things that you're talking about from the stage. I had no clue that there was such a stigma in the Black community about mental health and getting Mm. treatment for mental illness. It is still uncomfortable. My voice trembles every time (laughs) I do um, speak about uh, my own struggles with attempted suicide and, and so on. But I feel that it is imperative that we have this dialogue. And in my eyes, there wasn't a better candidate to speak from my own stage to my people than me to Mm -hmm. say, hey, Black folks, I am one of them and we can't just pray this away. And it's okay to say you're not okay. And this is how. Well, that sounds like the perfect segue to talk about your song, Count. So when it feels like my song, you talk about needing to count your joy, almost like it's a reminder to yourself. It, it is. It actually was a journal entry that was prompted by a suicide attempt. My um, psychiatrist at the time in Nashville told me, make a list of things that I felt worth living for. And at the top were my nephews who were toddlers. Fast forward some years, I found the journal entry and it just flowed out of me. Like within a day, I had majority of the song. And then one of my Jubilee sister, Fist Jubilee sisters, helped me finish the second verse. And we were off to the races with Count. I love this part of the song where you break it down. Waking up, breathing, friends and family, mercy. These are all joy. Absolutely. Joy. I woke up. That's joy. Breath in my body. That's joy. Friends and family. That's joy. That's joy. That's joy. Grace and mercy always right behind me. That's joy. That's joy. That, 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 that's joy. I'm blessed. So blessed even when I'm stressed. No matter what. Has this song helped you connect with other people who are going through a similar journey, trying to find those spaces of joy and maybe in some cases struggling to find spaces of joy in their life? It started almost immediately 
where I would be approached by people in the audience, audience members, who would wait. You know, sometimes there's receiving lines at the end of concerts, and they would wait until the end so we could be one-on-one to say, I hear what you're saying, and I need help, or my family member needs help. Do you have any references? And it really started to pivot when I had a friend call me and say, I'm in therapy, sis, but I don't think that this lady believes me when I tell her what I'm experiencing. And he was talking really about just being a Black man. And my sister Stacy and I, we found someone, got him connected, and it just ballooned from there, other people making that request. And then people reaching out with grant money, saying we can take at least 20 Black children, women, and men for however long. We have gift cards for Lyft or, you know, those kinds of things. And then people were volunteering to babysit, you know, just to make time. It really just sort of became a movement. And that's how we started the Count Joy Network and it sort of outgrew us. And so <laughs> well, now, that's a good problem. To that have. It is. Now we can easily refer to online directories and telehealth is a thing. And that's great. And so we're we are having great success. Back to your residency at Dazzle. Do you have a mission for that residency? I do. Don um, Rosa, when he was saying that no one else was doing that. He also shared with me that he felt Dazzle stages needed to be more reflective of our community. Hmm. And I had been called upon to do panel discussions on race on the Dazzle stage and other things, uh, mental health fundraisers and what have you. And he said, you'll notice that you all are the only black people here and we don't want that. And so with this residency, I have been intentional about platforming other black artists, other independent black artists and black music. And so we are intentional about sharing those stories of composers that have gotten lost or aren't shared. I hope now most Americans are familiar with The Wiz, which is the Black American interpretation of The Wizard of Oz. And the original, of course, featuring Michael Jackson and Diana Ross, among yes. others. The, yes, the movie. The movie. But the, the Broadway musical was the beginning of Stephanie Mills. Yes, career. She yes. was the original home. Dorothy. Yes. <laughs> Signature tune, Home. And the composer of The Wiz was Charlie Smalls. And when we first launched the residency, our closing tune was the Scarecrow's anthem, You Can't Win, that's <laughs> made famous by Michael Jackson. You can't win, you can't make even, and you can't get out of the game. People keep saying things are gonna change, but they look just like they're staying the same.
do our arrangement of You Can't Win before we would do it. My mom would say, tell them a story. (laughs) She she would not let me stop telling Charlie Small's story about being an 11-year-old prodigy to enter Juilliard. Wow. And, you know, shortly thereafter, he pinned the whiz. And it really is a a story about being black in America. You know, all the costumes and everything, you know, color it nice and make it palatable. But if you just listen to the lyrics um, of that soundtrack from start to finish and, you know, don't necessarily think about scarecrows and lions and tigers and bears, you definitely hear the plight of black America, which still reigns true today. The first song we heard today, Butterflies Have Died, will be on your new album. It features Monique Brooks-Roberts. Here we are on the heels of Valentine's Day. (laughs) What message does the song send about love? So it is indeed a love song, but we have to realize that every expression of love isn't always, I just want to be close to you, I love you, touch me now. You know, sometimes it's, I love you, but stay over there. There is one line that says, I refuse to spend forever falling out of love. Mm. And it's the start of the conversation. Are we ending this or are we going to fight for this? Well, I don't know if this is before your time, but I'm a big fan of the movie Love Jones. And it made me really think about the characters uh, in that movie where there was a longstanding couple, Nia Long, and her longtime partner. And it just kind of became, are we just doing this because we've been here together for so long that it's just all we know? And are we just too scared to admit that this is over? Right. And then she does end up leaving to go with the leading man, Lorenz Tate, who is Red Fox's grandson. Are you serious? He is Red, <laughs> I never Red Fox's knew that. grandson. If you knew how obsessed I am with Sanford and Son, <laughs> you're breaking news to me. That is so hilarious. I can't believe it. I know, right? <laughs> I just I didn't think myself. that was possible. Um, well, it strikes me that you've been performing for so long and are just getting ready to put out your first whole album. Yes. Why is that? And do you like playing live more than recording? I do. I love performing. I want to be on stage and I want to be able to to exchange energies, you know, with the audience. That exchanges everything. The so, energy. Yeah. So each performance is different. Even if I were to do the exact same set list... Each performance is different. I also spent majority of my 20s singing background for different artists and being more of a session vocalist than anything. And I was blessed to sing on three Grammy-nominated projects, but I just decided to take a chance on me, to start betting on me. And so now we are Joe Foki and Same Cloth, I believe in this project more than anything else I've been a part of. And so I feel like the time is right. Let's play a final original track that you recorded with the same cloth. It's called No Good. Yes. You're the first thing I see before I get out of bed. You're the last thing I see when I lay down my head. 
what is this song about? This song is, it really depends on the day. It might just be about my dating history, but <laughs> it really is about um, our smartphones. You know, there's no reason why it should be the first thing we see <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> I never thought about that. And the last thing at night. Yet here we are. Um, I feel naked when I don't know where my phone is, oh. let alone have it with me. could do all right without as much screen time yeah <laughs> well I can relate because in December I lost my phone for like two days <laughs> it felt like the end of the world like I I think I was gonna have a breakdown <laughs> about I, it <laughs> I understand I lose my phone for at least two hours every day yeah, it was, it's pretty scary how we depend on technology so much. So much. I lived life without a phone for the first 18 years of my life. How is it that we're here now that I must have this? Sometimes having access or someone having access to you 24-7 is not good for anyone. It's definitely not good for my health. And so Solomon Chapman actually had the concept for this. And he was like, what about this? Like playing on my computer, on my computer. See, exactly. Technology is ruining everything on my piano. Now you're in your early 40s now and you've been performing since you were a kid. Where do you hope music takes you from here? In all honesty, I just wanted to be able to pay my bills. I really want the appreciation of music to be as common as the appreciation for your accountant mm. or or any other profession in any other industry. And I really hope that for all of the arts. I hope it carries me to a place of comfortable retirement if I choose that. But I'm clearly an advocate, especially when this is our livelihood. I just hope that people understand that an in-kind donation of skilled performance mm. is not the move. I'm sorry, I can't take your fruit basket or, <laughs> or a ticket to your event or a plate at your banquet um, as payment. No, I hope that that is understood in Colorado and that it's it happens soon so that the mass exodus that has started doesn't continue of artists leaving for better markets in California, Nashville, Atlanta, Chicago, New York, so on and so forth. So you have seen an exodus of musicians in your orbit in Colorado oh, leaving absolutely. the state? It actually was something that used to be communicated to us young musicians. You know, well, if you're going to do this, you need to go somewhere that is legit for music. And now with technology being what it is, we don't necessarily have to go anywhere to get a deal or a distribution. And we have we do have some world class 
studios here in Denver. But hopefully Denver sees the value in the local artist and artistry and then supports it because people are going to need to do what they have to do to make a living. And so, yes, several folks have left. There are some who have come back, but those who have come back are are people like Diane Reeves, <laughs> who mm. is well-established. It's a sore spot that kind of touches me in a hurting place because Colorado is home, and I would hate to have to leave for that, but you have to do what you have to do. Well, as you said with your first album, you're taking a chance on yourself. Yes. There's a, a song that, again, it was Solomon's concept called Take a Chance on You. It's kind of like what Jay-Z said a few weeks ago at on the Grammys, you know, just keep showing up. Keep showing up until they call you, call you what you feel they should call you, until they see what you think they should see, until you are the chairperson or mm. so on and so forth, and, or artist of the year. You show up until they see what you know about yourself. Jocelyn, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Jocelyn Ford Kill performs under the name Jofo Key. She has a residency at Dazzle. Her new single is called Butterflies Have Died, and her album about the many dimensions of love is due out this spring. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. blame games and bickering can be exhausting. But if you tune out, you can miss hearing about the powerful ways our elected representatives can shape our lives. I'm CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim. My job is to make sure you know about the important things Colorado's members of Congress do, the policies they advocate, the ones they oppose, and what it all means for you. Follow all our government reporting at CPR.org. In the early 1900s, about 300 black homesteaders created a community called Deerfield in northern Colorado. The site where it used to stand could soon be a part of the National Park Service. There's a study going on now to help Congress decide if that should happen. And as CPR's race, diversity and equity reporter Elaine Tassie found, there's a lot of support for the effort statewide. On a highway about 70 miles from Denver, you hear sounds of trucks, winds and rustling. More than a century ago, this was a thriving community of people using the Homestead Act of 1862. It allowed them to own land after farming it successfully for five years. A black man named O.T. Jackson wanted to try it. 
he encouraged other black people to come along. That included Anna and Frank McPherson. Their great-great-granddaughter, Terry Gentry, now lives in Denver and is in her 60s. When she visits, she hears her ancestors' voices. When you're walking through the Deerfield area, it feels like they're talking about some of their experiences and sharing that with me while I'm walking. She learned they bought land there in 1906, and she hears them coaxing crops to grow and trying to make life work at Deerfield. Figuring out ways to utilize the few extra dollars they have to work on building a home. Terry Gentry is one of many Coloradans excited about the prospect of the Park Service designation, as is George June, professor of Africana Studies at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. Oh, we hope that that goes through because it, Deerfield is important. It was a great example of what black people could do if given the chance. He says there was a gas station, a church, a cafe, and so much farming that residents sold their crops to neighbors. The area began to deteriorate with the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression in the 30s. The tiny plot is just about a square mile. For it to become part of the Park Service, there are four criteria. Becky Rhinus, a Park Service planner, says they are feasibility, suitability, need for protection, and national significance. The team is identifying the extent to which Deerfield could, if it were added to the national park system, fill a gap in public understanding and appreciation of the history of African Americans in the American West. About one in three spaces gets the Park Service's recommendation. Bob Brunswick is an archaeologist who's done digs there. He imagines the founder's home as a museum. That's where the yield of his digs can be displayed. He excavates around the buildings that are still standing. Two of the standing buildings have fragments of wallpaper. We find broken porcelain and china buttons for, uh, for shirts and for overalls. About 90% of the land is owned by the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center in Denver. It's run by a board of volunteers. One of them is Daphne Rice Allen. I know everybody's like, ooh, 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 that as exciting as this may sound, it's important to know that this is still way down the road. Recently, someone donated business ledgers from Deerfield to a different museum, the City of Greeley Museum, another supporter of the project. Among other things, they show when homesteaders borrowed $5 for homestead fees and when founder O.T. Jackson ordered gallons of strawberry ice cream for a fair. Museum manager Chris Bowles describes the Deerfield homesteaders as civil rights pioneers, demonstrating self-determination post-slavery with a message that said, We can create our own town. We can create our own farming community. It's, it's a recognition of that context in which a, a community like this could be created and for a time thrive. Terry Gentry, the great-great-granddaughter of one of Deerfield's homesteading couples, says it's a way to preserve a part of history. And with that designation, we can continue to share and celebrate the history of our ancestors and the work and time that they invested in changing their lives. The study will be complete in 2025, and then the Park Service will give their recommendations to Congress. 
I'm Elaine Tassie, CPR News. When we come back, it's an all-star weekend for the voice of the Denver Nuggets. This is a special Black History Month edition of Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Just outside Roxborough Park, a little more than a century ago, the town of Silica seemed as solid as any other. Maybe more so because the silicated brick company built it. Silicated bricks were said to be stronger than fired clay bricks. They improve with age, the company claimed, as it churned out 30,000 a day, stamped with an S. Demand was so solid, the railroad came, and a sturdy town grew. Houses, a grocery store, even a dance hall where 50 neighbors once gathered for a birthday party. All report having had a fine time, said the Record Journal newspaper on March 24, 1911. But two years later, the silicated brick company turned to dust. After that, the town was dismantled and weathered away. Today, the only reminder of silica is an old limestone kiln, an official Douglas County landmark. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With support from Coble and Company. It's an all-star weekend for the Denver Nuggets stadium announcer. Kyle Speller has been the voice of the Nuggets for nearly two decades, and he's the team's chaplain, too. He, he'll be calling two events at the NBA All-Star Game this weekend in Indianapolis. Rising Stars on TNT and the HBCU Classic on TNT, ESPN2, and NBA TV. I spoke with Speller about his journey to the microphone as the Nuggets kicked off their season. People always ask me all the time, how did you get that role? How did you get, how did you become the announcer? And I, I always tell them, you know, I didn't actually go to school for it or, or there's guys that have been doing it for years and, and, and all. My route was totally different. And for me, I'm a man of faith. And I always say I, it was God that opened that door for me. Mm. I was a rookie free agent with the Nuggets back in 1999. Um, I, I was, a I still tell people I was a nugget for three days because I got cut. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was a nugget for three days. <laughs> but, uh, but during that time I met a man by the name of Tommy Shepard. He's no longer with the team now. He was like the PR guy at that point in time. And so I just asked him, you know, I knew that I had a voice. Um, and for me, something that I, I always loved, I loved how I, I was a Michael Jordan fan as well. Who wasn't? And, <laughs> and so the way that the Bulls announcer, his name was Ray Clay. And when mm. he would ever, when he would do his player introductions, I would always get goosebumps on my arms. So I, I said, you know what? I would love to do that for the Nuggets someday. I didn't even know what it was called. And so anyway, I, I reached out to that guy, Tommy Shepard, at that point in time. Nothing ever happened. He did give me a name of an individual, Sean Martinez, at the Nuggets in, in the game entertainment area. I reached out to him, reached out to him. Now, mind you, I was a rookie free agent in 1999, and years went by. Years went by. Nothing ever happened. I would reach out. Nothing, nothing, nothing. In the meantime, I was a part of a prison ministry basketball team where we would go around the state of Colorado. We'd play against all the prisons, and one of the things that I would do in order to help encourage the inmates is I would just in there in in the in the gyms I would just do the player introductions on the microphone and I would introduce wow. the players and little did I know that was this is why I say it was all God that was his way of preparing me for this opportunity and wow. so there was just one day out of the blue, the Nuggets had an open audition. Mm -hmm. The title said, grab your microphones. If you were the public address announcer for the Nuggets. And you grabbed your microphone. Right. <laughs> how would you do the player introductions? Well, I had been doing it in my head for years, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I went into the studio, recorded a demo, and literally five minutes. 
five and minutes. five minutes and then sent it in and a couple weeks later heard back from them they said mine was the only one that they liked wow. and they brought me in and, and i've been there ever since <laughs> and What's cool is that you're also historic. You are not only the mm. first African-American public address announcer yes. in the Nuggets franchise history, mm -hmm. but also the first in the state of Colorado Absolutely. for any of the major professional teams. Yes, and that's that's something that uh, is very special for me to be able to say that I'm the first black anything. It's just powerful, and it's an honor, and I don't take it for granted at all. And we must say this, you are really a hometown guy. Like, yes. you were born in Brooklyn, yes. but you grew up here in Colorado in Denver's historic coal neighborhood mm -hmm, mm -hmm. near Park Hill. That's right. 30th of Monroe. I grew up there. Was It was the East, the East Denver YMCA used to be there. I used to practice a lot of basketball in that gym. It's, it's gone now, but... That's right where I grew up. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm originally from Brooklyn, but I, I call Colorado home. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also used to DJ at mm -hmm. Adams State University. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now when I was there, you did your research. Yes. <laughs> when I was there, it wasn't Adams State University. That's how long ago it was. It oh, was wow. Adams State College. <laughs> wow. So, so but name yes, changed and yes, you're still here. <laughs> yes. And so, but uh, yeah, I did. I, I DJed there. And that was actually where I discovered that I had a voice. Um, and that was when I first moved into the area of, of voiceover. I was first introduced to voice just in we would have reel to reels. We would have reels. They don't have that in. I'm looking in this studio now. There's no reels any longer. Looking for uh, a beta tape. Yes. In here or something. <laughs> and so, but I would do my own voiceovers for my own promos, and that was where I would the, the first time I actually heard my voice and and found out about this this voiceover space and 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 so yeah, those were those were the days. Wow, and you do a lot. Uh, mm. You also are a school counselor by mm -hmm, day. Mm -hmm, yeah. I don't know how you manage yeah. all of this. but <laughs> Keep the plate spinning. Yeah, it's an opportunity, you know, to be quite honest. I always said I never wanted to work with middle schoolers. I said I don't mind working with high schoolers or mm. even the younger, but I never wanted to tough work age, with middle Tough school. age, tough age. Yes. And so I'm a middle school counselor as well. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm serving at a school in Aurora. And, you know, I for me, like I said, once again, I'm a man of faith. And I said, OK, if I'm going to be here, then, Lord, I need you to give me a heart for these kids. And he's done that. And so those, those are my babies now. And I'm just like, wow, OK. It's and, just, you, and you have to be the coolest. I mean, your <laughs> counselor is at the Nuggets game at night. I mean, yeah, I would be impressed. It's an honor to uh, be able to just make an impact on the lives of these young kids uh, at this stage in their life. And so uh, it's, it's just, imp it's powerful. And, and I just hope to be able to, to do a good job. Hey, this is, this is the kind of job where you, you don't see the fruits of your labor right away. Maybe, you know, 10 years, 15 years down the line, maybe one of them will come back and say, Hey, something you said made a difference. And so mm. we'll see. You're not only the voice of the nuggets, mm -hmm. You also serve as a community ambassador mm -hmm. and as a chaplain yes. and as the chaplain for correct. the team. Correct, correct. Tell us about that. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, have been the team chaplain as well for now. This is my 17th season starting in that role. And it's just a space where uh, you know, the players, I'm, I'm there to serve. And it's not just for the players, but for 
anyone that's in that arena at that point in time. It's just I'm I'm that individual that uh, I, I I always walk into that arena and I, I I always say a little prayer to myself. Okay, you know, Lord, don't let them hear me. Let them hear you in me and and help me to just see wherever you're at work all around me. Where if there's someone that's in need of encouragement or whatever, help me to be in position to to speak to that person. And so whether it's the 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 security people that are in the back hallways, there's people in the stairwells that you don't even see. The public don't see those individuals. But one of the things I love to do is I love to go around and just tell them that they matter. They make a difference. They are champions as well. Um, anyone from those guys to the coaches to the players, um, I'm there to serve in, in that spiritual capacity for them. Um, the way our chapels work, we uh, each NBA team has, has a chaplain. For, for the most part, yeah, mm-hmm. the majority of the teams do. And, and we all just, we have a, a little short service uh, before every game. Really? Um, in the NBA, it's done differently. In the NBA, you have both teams together, uh, the players from both teams wow. together. We're in the NFL, it's just that team. And same thing with MLB. Same thing with hockey as well. And so the NBA is a little different. And uh, it's just an honor. As the chaplain, I have to ask, mm-hmm. do you feel like, God's on the side of the Nuggets. No, I, I, that's one prayer I never pray. I don't. I don't say, "Hey, Lord, help us." Win. You don't yeah. try to sway the results, like Lord. No, it's, no, it's it's uh, it's always for me. It's just help everyone just play their best. Play your best. Help everyone play their best and and uh, be healthy <laughs> with it. And yeah, I'm. I. I. Yeah, I don't. I, I I don't know whatever whatever he he's God he's gonna do whatever he wants to do and so but uh I for me as first personally I just you know help me to bring glory to your name and and not mess it up or not be a bad witness for for you on your behalf. <laughs> now as we wrap up, I have to ask, um, is there a story that stands out to you in looking back at the 19 years mm. that just kind of sums up your experience mm. in this role? Well, there, there's one story. It, I think it's probably my favorite story of all of the, the things that I've been through. It, it's one that actually didn't take place in the arena. It was one that took place. Uh, there's a park across I-25 and, and, we were doing a shoot there for something, um, some kind of video shoot or some kind of promo or something like that. And there was a lady that came up to me and she introduced me to her little daughter. And what she told me, she said that her daughter had a a speech uh, impairment and that her daughter, there were certain things that she couldn't pronounce, certain words that she couldn't say. And one of the the letters that she couldn't pronounce were her letter R's, her R's. And she said one day, though, her daughter all of a sudden began to pronounce her R's. And how she did it is because she was imitating me saying super mascot Rocky. (laughs) And that's how she learned to pronounce her letter R's was by me pronouncing Rocky's name. And so... That was one that was very special <laughs> for me. <laughs> and it, like I said, it was just, you know, that that's that was just so powerful to me. And that wow. was just one one of the amazing stories that stands out for me. <laughs> well, I can't just sit here in the studio across from the voice of the Denver Nuggets <laughs> and not ask you to do a little something for us. Mm-hmm. Can you send us to break with a little 
This is Colorado Matters, but I'm sure better than mm-hmm. I just said. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me see. <clears throat> Let me clear my throat a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, yeah! This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Let's go! Okay. Mics are dropping in the studio right now, like the proverbial mic drop. Thank you so much, Kyle. This Thank was so you, much Shonda. fun. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, for good me. luck and keep drinking that honey and tea hey, so that we can go. keep hearing you. <laughs> Kyle Speller is the stadium announcer for the Denver Nuggets and the first black person to serve in that role. We spoke in October as the team kicked off its season. He'll be announcing at two events at the NBA All-Star Weekend in Indianapolis. Thanks for joining us for this special Black History Month edition of Colorado Matters. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield with special thanks to Rachel Estabrook and Michael Hughes. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Earl the Pearl and Will Big O and Jerry West. Please.